We've been in this series entitled Who's Your One where we've been focused on those of us in a relationship with Jesus helping other people who are not in a relationship with Jesus to come into a relationship with Jesus. And we started really simply thinking about the heart of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, because when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, the Bible says. He looked at them like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is very concerned about the loss. And so we just started there. Your heart needs to be with those who are not, not, not just not here in this church, but who just are not in the kingdom, who don't know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Everything we do, in some respect or another, has to have a mind toward people beyond the boundaries of our particular church experience or Christian context. That's the way Jesus operated. Then last week or two weeks ago, we started talking about prayer. We talked about the need to be praying specifically for the advance of the gospel, not just with regards to the Lord of the harvest sending out more workers in the harvest field, but praying with specificity with regards to the open doors and for people in particular. Then last week, we emphasized the importance of patience when it comes to evangelism because while urgency is at the heart of reaching people, it takes time for people to believe. It takes time for people to move toward Jesus with integrity. It takes time to believe the gospel. And then last but not least, today, we're talking about pressing uh, pressing people with regards to the announcement of Christ and the necessity to respond. And this is where it gets a little bit sticky. Now, last week, we did go through this little metaphor or this image of making coffee. And I taught everybody here how to make coffee in the correct way. You, you take your little instrument, turn it upside down, you pour in the coffee, you pour in the water, and you let it soak. And once it's soaked and Everything is ready. Then you put the cap on, and then you turn things upside down. And what's the last thing that you do? You press. It's the very last thing. It's not the first thing. But we do get to that moment where you, you press. And Jesus pressed people. He presses us. He presses other people. And this is where it gets a little bit weird or uncomfortable because nobody really likes to press. We're not a, we're not a confrontational type of culture. We sort of avoid it. We don't, the only time we confront people is when we get really, really angry, and that's unfortunate. But on the whole, we just want to leave well enough alone and keep our distance and, and not stir anything up because we don't want anybody thinking that we're mad at them or angry with them, and we don't want a mad or angry, rejecting kind of response. So when it comes to the last thing, it's harder. It's harder than, I have a heart for people, you might say. I feel for people. I pray for people. I'll pour into people's lives. I'll give them time, but the thing we have the hard time with is depressing because it just feels confrontational. I, I'll tell you, nobody likes to confront anybody. I went to the store, this is about six, seven weeks ago. I was at HEB. I, 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 I don't know what I was getting. I think it was milk and eggs or something very basic. I go into the store, and when I walk into the store, I walk past two attendants there. You know how attendants are there at the the door to make sure everything's clean and all is in order and that kind of thing. I walk right past them. I walk past about 15, 16, 17 other people and everybody's giving me a funny look. And I'm like, what is going on? I don't, I don't understand. At first I thought, well, you know, I, I still got it. Like, you know, I mean, you know, I, I mean, you know, I mean, it's the body of a 20 year old or something. I thought, no, that can't be it. And then my mind goes back to my childhood and the rules that I learned as a kid. 
You know how when you're in these moments of uncertainty, you just go to what you know. So I'm thinking, always say thanks. No, that doesn't apply here. Always say please. No, that doesn't apply here. X, Y, Z, examine your zipper. That doesn't apply here. Thank you. Uh, and so, I was, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's a good rule to remember. But I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Eventually, I figured out I don't have a mask. I walked in unmasked. I didn't intend to. I wasn't trying to be, you know, rebellious or protest or anything like that. I, I believe in masks and I believe in them around food and especially when you can't socially distance. I, I didn't have any problem with any of that. I just forgot. And I forget my mask all the time. But it, so I, I went out of the store immediately, went to my Jeep, got my mask, went back inside. But it occurred to me, nobody, even the people who were paid to say, where's your mask? They didn't say, where's your mask? People just gave me funny looks, but nobody said anything to me the entire time I was in that store without a mask on. We don't like to confront people. Now, Jesus, I don't know that he likes it or dislikes it, but Jesus is very comfortable with, with regards to confrontation. I don't know if you've noticed that, but when you read through the New Testament, Jesus has no problem confronting people. Now, he'll do it kindly and sweetly and gently if that's what works. And sometimes with the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Who told you to repent? And he'll just get right in their face. But Jesus had no problem with confrontation. He had no problem in pressing. And that's true not just for those who are outside of the church, but that's true for those of us who are inside. In fact, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I have to tell you, whenever I get into the Word, I feel pressed. But that's okay. You know why that's okay? Because Jesus is Lord. Because He's the boss. Because He has all authority. And so He has every right to tell me and to tell you what it is that He expects and then expect us to follow through in consistent obedience because He's the Lord. And I don't think that's really oppressive or anything. It's just entirely appropriate. But it's amazing how often as a pastor I will run into people from time to time and they'll know, they'll say, you know, they know Jesus as their Savior or I, I know him as my friend. And that's true. There's, there's not a better friend than Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, I call you friends. He is our big brother, the firstborn among many. It's how it's put in Hebrews. He's the big brother. You can know him in that way and you should know him in that way. But you also need to know him as Lord, as absolute and thorough authority in your life. In fact, I would say if you only know him as your personal Savior, but you don't know him as Lord, you, you still do not know Jesus. You, you just don't. Uh, l- l- let me give you an illustration. I think this is kind of helpful. I grew up hearing this. I, I heard this a couple of times at least, probably three or four times. It's a common illustration, and every time I heard it from pastors, it sounded like they'd made it up on the way, but it probably goes back to some illustration book that's 100 years old or something, but it's a good illustration. The story goes like this. Suppose you knew this uh, really, really smart person. They're a professor, let's say, at a place like the University of Texas, and, and they teach history, and they know everything there is to know about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, this professor, she's brilliant. She can tell you all the ins and outs of the debates and the topics that were debated with Douglas in Illinois. She could tell you the the thought processes and the strategies that Abraham Lincoln had in mind when the Civil War was going on. They could tell you all about the abolition of slavery and the role that Abraham Lincoln played. And uh, this, this person, she could also tell you about the acquisition of Alaska and what was involved in that. She could tell you all of these things. She could affirm to you that it was Lincoln who said... Give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four hours sharpening my axe. She she knows all these quotes and everything about Lincoln. But being a professor here in 2020, 
Obviously, she's never met Abraham Lincoln. Now, suppose there's also this little girl who lives next door to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, she sees every morning the carriage that's pulled up out front to pick him up and take him to his various sundry duties. And frequently, when he comes out, Abraham Lincoln notices the girl next door and he, he befriends her. He knows her name. She knows his name. He tells her stories. He gives her flowers. Sometimes he'll hold her in his lap. Sometimes she'll whisper in his ear and she knows him as a warm, living human being, but she doesn't know anything about abolition. She doesn't know anything about the war between the states or politics. She just knows Abraham Lincoln as a fine, personal, warm human being. Now, the question that the preacher would then ask is, okay, so who knows Abraham Lincoln better? The little girl who doesn't know anything about Abraham Lincoln, but she knows what it feels like to be hugged by him. She knows what his voice sounds like what it's like for for him to give her a gift. Does she know him better or does it, the professor who knows everything about him but no, has never met him, who knows him better? And, of course, the expected response from the crowd was always, well, the little girl knows him better because she knows him. She's met him personally. Okay, I don't mean to undermine the personal knowledge of Jesus and the need to meet him as your own personal Savior, but let me give you another illustration. Kind of a counter-illustration. Imagine there's a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And this reporter doesn't just know everything on public record about this one mafia don. He's created the public record. This reporter has investigated this person, and this person that's been investigated is a crook. This, this reporter could tell you everything about this mafia don, how he has risen to power from the little backroom poker clubs to extorting money from restaurants for protection. And he could tell you about all these apparently legitimate businesses that are only fronts for illegitimate uh, activities. And he could tell you all these things. He could take you to the whiteboard and draw all the, the lines of this organization is connected to that and this is how much they're making and this is what's really going on. He could tell you everything about this media don or, or this uh, <laughs> uh, mafia don. But he's never actually met the man, but he can tell you everything about him. Now, suppose there's also this little girl who lives next door to the Mafia Don and she sees the stretch limo in front of his yard, ready to take him to work every day. And sure enough, they develop a relationship and the, the man comes over and, and he hugs the little girl and he gives her wonderful gifts at Christmas and birthdays and she knows the sound of his voice. She doesn't know anything about his terrible activities. She's never seen The Godfather. She's never even watched an episode of The Sopranos. She doesn't know what any of the, the good fellows are talking about when they say, oh, yeah, this person is no longer available for the census. She doesn't understand any of that stuff. She just knows this person is a living, warm, breathing human being. Now, who knows the Mafia Don better? The reporter who's never met him or the little girl who knows the sound of his voice but knows nothing about his business. Now, here you're going to say, wait a second, that little girl doesn't know this guy at all. And you're right. There's just some people that if you don't know their authority, if you don't know the extent of their power and how they use their authority, you don't know them. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, but you don't know him as Lord, I'm just going to tell you, you don't know him. Jesus announces himself to these disciples who have a personal relationship with him. And along the way in the Gospels, he is, of course, revealing his nature and his character. But right before he commissions them, 
you know, with the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion, where he says, go make disciples, we're going to turn around and make other disciples. Before this, he says, I, I want to tell you something about me. You, you need to know this. You need to know who you're dealing with here. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. We're going to focus on one verse. Typically, we look at the other verses about how as you go, make disciples. But we're going to start in this one verse, real simple. Here it is. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this is an amazing announcement that comes from a man who has been traveling with these disciples as friends for, you know, about three years. And and here's Jesus about to ascend. He's about to leave them. And he says, here's something you need to know about me. Before he gives them this commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that's quite a statement. And it is a statement that essentially summarizes in a very succinct way what is stated elsewhere more broadly uh, was stated elsewhere like in Philippians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 5. This is just a, a summary of Jesus has all authority. And the reason I say this is a succinct statement or a summary statement is because in the ancient world, people believed not just in two levels of authority, but they believed in three levels or three realms of authority. There was the heavenly realm, which was not necessarily the highest, but it was the angelic realm, the powers of the air. Sometimes it's how it was referred to, uh, the, the realm of heaven. And then there was the realm of earth, the visible realm. This would be all the authorities, political authorities or other uh, influences where people would try to sway people in their thinking and in their actions and their activities. And then there was the realm of the underworld, the realm of the dead, the dead spirits, the the ghostly realm, so to speak. And so you see this kind of largely at work in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the the apostle Paul talks about how Jesus has been obedient. He's suffered on the cross. And as a result of all of this, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Talking about... In every realm that you can imagine that is conceivable, that anybody thought about, Jesus has authority, unique and absolute utter authority. You go over to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, there's this interesting scene. And Revelation is it's, it's filled with these uh, images, symbols, scenarios, and the, the, the basic gist of most of it. And I'm saying basic, but the basic gist of most of it is Jesus is the, Jesus is the authority. And he's the one who wins. In the end, he wins. The victory belongs to the Lord. And here in chapter 5, you have this place where there's a scroll. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And no one can take the scroll and open the seals. No one can open the book, so to speak. You know, now we have books, they open like this. Or you have books on your iPads. And back in the day, it was just everything was all rolled up and you rolled it out. And so no one can open the book, so to speak. It is sealed tight. It is really sad to people because this scroll represents again rather broadly speaking and we could debate all the fine points it represents you know history it represents the plan it represents everything coming together and and what we want is for there to be meaning we want for there to be resolution we want to know how does this play out is it for good or for evil how's everything wrapped up is there any sense to life or is it just sound and fury signifying nothing and so of course people are upset they want someone to open the scroll and we want things to un, un, unveil themselves for us too. When we look at history, we wonder how's this going to turn out. 
Some people until Saturday were wondering how's the election going to turn out. Some people still are wondering how the election is going to turn out. And I'm wondering what it's going to take for people to stop wondering. I don't know how this is going to play out. I just know that uh, when, uh, you know, there's some things that are kind of predictable. Uh, when uh, when Biden appears to be the, the next president, marijuana stocks and mass stocks went up. So that was kind of predictable. But other than that, you know, we can't always predict what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to play out politically. We don't know how things are going to play out with regards to the virus. We don't know what next year is going to bring. But even more broadly than that, we're just wondering, is this playing out in any meaningful way? Apparently, the majority of people in this country, if you're talking about agnostics or atheists or just, you know, at least nominal uh, church attenders, there's kind of, you know, is there a point to any of this? People wonder. Is there anyone who can take the scroll and break the seals, open it up? Verse 2, let's get to this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. The word goes forth from the courts of heaven. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So there are plenty of good Baptists in heaven, and so they form a committee, and they go out on a search. Verse 3, but no one inside of heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. So the search committee returns, and they say, we've looked everywhere. We've gone through all the realms. We checked out the heavenly realm. Gabriel couldn't open it. The archangel Michael couldn't handle it. There were no cherubim. There were no seraphim. Nobody could take the scroll and, and break the seals. And, and we went through all the earthly realm, and there was nobody there either. We took it to President Trump. He couldn't do it. Uh, we took it to, you know, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He couldn't do it. Took it to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She couldn't do it. No one could break the seals. Even Bono couldn't do it. And if Bono can't do it, nobody can do it. And believe it or not, we... we we found out that not even the entire army of editors at Twitter and Facebook and YouTube could take the scroll and break the seals. Nobody had authority. Then we went to the underworld because, you know, if you're a good Baptist committee, you are willing to walk through hell in order to get to your destination. That's how committees work, okay? We have good committees like that. And so we, we went to Hades and we found out Satan couldn't do it, Cerberus couldn't do it. We went to you know, Mordor and to the death king under the white mountains. We went everywhere. We couldn't find anybody that had the authority to take the scroll and open the seals. And, and here's what John says. John says, I wept and wept. You know why? You can't blame him. Because here's what everybody wants. Here's what John wants. Here's what all the creation wants. We want someone to make meaning out of all of this. We want someone to bring it together. We can't live without purpose. We can't live without direction. We can't live without the conviction that somehow, in some way, there's going to be resolution. There's going to be peace. That things are going to be made right. That all of this makes sense. Because we can't stand the thought of there not somehow, in some way, being a plan of this story coming together in the end. We can't stand the thought that it's just, this is it and nothing is ever going to change and get better. And John says, I wept and I wept. And let me tell you something. People may not be able to identify 
Jesus as the one who brings it all together and reconciles the world to God and reconciles one another to God and reconciles us to, to each other and makes this whole messed up human race into one great big happy family. But let me tell you something, everybody wants that. Everybody is searching for meaning. Everybody is searching for a hopeful end to the story. Everybody wants reconciliation and forgiveness and a fresh start. And so John and everyone else is very upset because if, if there is no one to open the scroll, this is sad. But good news. Here we go. Verse 5. Suddenly there's this announcement. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. We have found one who is worthy. There is one who can do this. And, of course, this is Jesus Christ. And right after Jesus tells the disciples, uh, right before he tells the disciples, hey, you go and do this, he's reminding them, this is who you're dealing with here. I'm the one who's worthy. I'm the one who's been granted all authority in heaven on earth. And as far as Philippians is concerned, Revelation is concerned, I'm the one who has authority over, you know, even hell and death, Hades. Now, you might think that sounds a little bit heavy. Jesus is about to ascend. He's telling the disciples, this is who you're dealing with here. I am your friend and I'm your savior. I I died for you and all the rest. But listen, I, I am also the king of kings and lord of lords. I am the pantocrator, the ruler over all. Now, you go to do this. Y'all might think, that sounds a little bit heavy of Jesus. And I guess you could interpret it that way. But I don't think this is being heavy at all. And let me explain what I mean by this. Jesus, who is the one who has all authority, has elected you and has elected me to be a part of something tremendous. Now, when you think about it like that, okay, the one who knows all, has all authority, has elected me. He's the, he's the one who cast the vote, the only vote that ultimately counts. He's elected me. Does that kind of, I don't know, humble you? I, listen, this is, how, this is how elections work, in case you didn't know. Imperfect people with imperfect information through imperfect filters will make imperfect choices in an imperfect process for, I'm running out of fingers, for imperfect people. And sometimes, I mean, what else are you going to do? That's the process. I just think about these elections. I mean, every year in some respect or another, four years ago, one of the funniest things that happened in the previous election had nothing to do with the national election. There was a, a town in California, you may have heard of it, Oceanside. Oceanside, California had an election for a city treasurer, and the town voted for a dead man a man they knew had died 68 days before the election. Now, how would you have liked to have been the opponent? You know what I mean? Like, really? You just got beat out by a dead guy. And, uh, you know, you're like, that just sounds crazy to me. It happened. The guy's name was Gary Ernest. Now, uh, that's a strong name. It's hard not to vote for just name recognition. You know, the only stronger name than, than Gary Ernest would be Ernest Ernest, but I digress. But anyways, they voted for the guy and they knew he was dead. And they just were satisfied to let somebody else choose somebody. They just didn't want the opponent. Stuff like that happens. You just, that's just, you know, that's crazy. And, and every year, it doesn't matter, like last year, how did he become the, the chief nominee of all that? And then this year, go, how was it that this guy and this guy? And how did that happen? And what's really going on? And we don't always know. Okay, I'm not picking on anybody or any, I'm not taking sides. I'm just saying it gets a little weird. 
But when you have the one who has all authority and he knows you better than you know yourself and he's not voting on the basis of imperfect information or flashy commercials and he says, I, I elect you. That means something. And when he elected you and elected me, it wasn't because we were just so incredible and wonderful. This is how it's put over in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the in, in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. That's who God voted for. He, he elected you and me, the weak, the foolish, the insignificant, the nothing burgers. And when he elected you and me, when he chose us and he cast his ballot, he didn't do it from his armchair. He didn't do it through the mail. He didn't even have to just get up and wait in line for 15 minutes and fill out some boxes or something. He, uh, he voted with his blood. And he didn't donate 10%. He gave all of it. He was slaughtered. His ballot is drenched in the blood of God. That, that means something. Back to Revelation. The elders said to John, See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. John looks and he sees this very... He's thinking he's going to see this very Jewish-looking lion, and instead he sees a lamb. And when he sees the lamb, he's shocked because it looks like the lamb has been slaughtered. But this lamb that's been slaughtered is alive and not just barely alive. The, the lamb is standing, and he's standing in the center of the throne and the center of all the praise and worship at the center of heaven. This is a very apocalyptic literary picture of what is straightforwardly announced in Philippians chapter 2. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And when this lamb that was the lion who was slain for you and for me is announced and he's seen, The courts of heaven break out into wonderful praise. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Jesus brings everything together like nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth ever could. Now, what are some takeaways from all this? Let me give you three things to think about. I think they're relevant to where we are as a nation, but I also know they're incredibly relevant to our call to be the body of Christ with regards to helping other people to step into a relationship with Jesus. Just three observations. Number one, no matter how you may feel about the recent election, and I'm not taking sides, no matter how you may feel about the the recent election, the Lord is still in control. Jesus is on his throne. 
That has not changed. There was a Dutch theologian by the name of uh, Abraham Kuyper. He was a, a theologian and also the prime minister of the Netherlands for a while. And, and he said something at the end of a speech that I thought was so good. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine. This belongs to me. He owns every square inch of the creation. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And one day, everybody's going to acknowledge that. But until they acknowledge that, and that time has not yet come, until they acknowledge that, that doesn't keep us from acknowledging it. Nothing has changed there. He's in control. He has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth for that matter. Number two, it is a privilege to have been chosen by Jesus. So be who he's elected you to be and do what he's elected you to do. Don't you dare let someone else's election of someone else somehow overpower or or overshadow God's election of you to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. That calling and that election has not changed. And then finally, and I think this is probably to me the most significant takeaway, Jesus is the only Lord who can satisfy. And here's what I mean by this. People want, people want a lion. Okay. They, they also want a lamb. They want someone who's strong that can protect them, but they don't want to be eaten. And they also want a lamb, but they want some, someone sweet and kind and pastoral and all the rest, but they also want to be protected. People want the lion. They want the lamb. They want both. Can you get it? Nowhere but in Jesus. Nowhere but in Jesus. You might even interpret, you know, the recent election, whether it's over or not, whatever. You know, there's a lion and a lamb. People want both. People made choices. You get a little bit of that with regards to every leader. You get a little bit of that with every person. And Jesus is perfectly kind and gentle. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But he is a lion, and that means he is the king, and he will fight for you with strength and courage and conviction. He is the king, but he rules and wins the victory as the lamb who was sacrificed on your behalf. It's ultimate strength become ultimate weakness. This is not weakness being overpowered. This is ultimate power voluntarily emptying himself so that we will be filled. This is what people want. And no one is the lion and the lamb but Jesus. He lived the life you should have lived because he had the strength to do this. So that you would have the life that he deserved, but you didn't. And he died the death that you deserve, so you wouldn't die it. This is the lion and the lamb. And when the the lion and the lamb has done what the lion and the lamb alone could possibly do, in the end when we see this all, there is nothing but praise for him and no boasting in and of ourselves. Again, here's the song of heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language of people and nation. You have made them. That's all these people, people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people. You've made all of them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Did you notice that? And they will reign on earth. How many kings elect you with your blood, leave their throne so that you can reign? This is the kind of king with absolute power who uses his power so as to elevate us as he descends, we ascend. There's no other, there is no other person 
There is no other being in the universe but Jesus who has the authority to take the scrolls and break the seals, to bring it all together, that has the authority to resolve all of history, and not just that, but to resolve it in the best of ways where the human race is brought together with God, but not only reconciled to God, but reconciled to one another, where this great, big, messed up, divided human race is brought together as one family. And I'm telling you, everybody deep down inside wants this. And, and some of them have given up weeping for it because they believe there is none worthy in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what you get to do and what I get to do is this. We get to announce Jesus. We get to announce to people what you've been hoping for is found in Christ. I know sometimes people will reject the election that has been given to them by God. He voted by his son's shed blood and broken body. And people have a right to do that. Our nominating committee will will select people to serve on committees. And just because they're elected doesn't mean that people have to serve. They could still say no. But I'm just telling you, what all we do as the people of God when we press is simply announce to people what it is that they're desperate and weeping to hear. There is one who's worthy, and it's Jesus. So I know sometimes the pressing is a little bit uncomfortable, that when you get through the whole process and the coffee is made or the disciple is won, there's always only praise and we're moving further and further toward what it is that Jesus has called us to do in partnership with him to turn this upside down world right side up and make things right. Isn't that great? When Jesus presses us, he presses us only into doing something that is wonderful. And when Jesus presses people into receiving him as their king, All they're getting in the process is elevation and an opportunity to reign. There is no leader, there is no Lord like Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that you've given us as your people uh, to announce you having done what you've done so as to bring salvation to people. And the salvation, of course, that includes going to heaven one day when we die. Because at the heart of salvation is you being involved in our lives in the way that you've wanted to be from the very beginning. Because there is no God like you. You love us with an infinite love and you didn't just love us abstractly. You did what was necessary so as to bring us back into a right relationship with you. You sent your son Jesus Christ and by his blood he purchased us for you. That's it. It all comes down to what you've done for us. And when we receive what you've done for us, everything, of course, begins to change because you're the one we need. You're the one who's worthy. There is no one like you. So, Father, I pray, first of all, for the church, for the body of Christ, that we would be your witnesses as you would want us to be. You know, passionate and prayerful and, and appropriately patient, waiting appropriately for people to come with integrity to Christ, but may we also just be appropriate in our announcement of Jesus, recognizing that while people don't see it yet, you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and that's incredibly good news. And Lord, I also pray for those who have not yet received you as their King, as their Savior. Maybe there's someone here today that would simply just say to God, I want, I want what it is that you offer by your grace. If if you're out there watching or you're here listening, if you're present but you just say, you know, I I want that. I want Jesus. I want to acknowledge him. 
You can just simply say a prayer right where you are. God, I know that I have sinned. I've fallen short. I need forgiveness. And I know I need God in my life. And you're a God worth knowing. You're, you, I need a, a Lord like Jesus, the lion and the lamb. Why would I not say yes to a God who would die for me? And so, Lord, I, I don't know what all this means. I just know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died on my half, behalf and rose again from the dead. He lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And I know, I know I need you and I know that Jesus is the way. And so I acknowledge Jesus as my Savior and Lord. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for promising to always be with me, not just now, but for all eternity. Thank you for saving me. In Christ's name, amen.